Acme events take place on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respect to their elders past and present. Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. I'd like to welcome Mel Campbell. Mel is a freelance journalist and critic who co-hosts the fortnightly literature and culture podcast, The Rereaders, a lecturer in Monash University's Master of Communications and Media Studies program, and a writer on film, television and media at Junkie, The Big Issue, Crikey, Metro, The Guardian and many more. Her first book was the non-fiction investigation Out of Shape, debunking myths about fashion and fit out through Affirm Press, and she's a co-author of the romantic comedy novel The Hot Guy, recently released through Echo Publishing. Big round of applause for our host, Mel. Thank you. So I decided to sort of do a little bit of a dress up, um, but I'm, I didn't go all out. Um, I just thought I'd be subtle with it. Um, but unfortunately, my, my two uh, no co-panelists... Well, no, it was, it was my own independent idea. You were to know. Um, but anyway, let me introduce these two lovely people. Um, immediately to my left, so to your right, I've got Glendon Ivan, who is one of Australia's leading directors of film, television and advertising. Um, he was recently listed, he was a little embarrassed about this, but he was recently listed in the Sydney Morning Herald as one of Australian television's most powerful and influential. <laughs> so watch out everyone. Um, he came to attention with the short film Cracker Bag and we've got a little bit of a clip from that that we're going to watch tonight. Um, and that won the Palm d'Or in 2003 at Cannes. And his first feature film was Last Ride starring Hugo Weaving and that had an illustrious festival circuit as well. It premiered at Toronto. He won Best New Director at the Abu Dhabi <coughs> Film Festival and the Jury Prize at the Rome International Film Festival. But you might also know Glendon's work in television. So recently he directed Seven Types of Ambiguity. Um, he's also done Puberty Blues, which we'll be seeing some of tonight, and uh, The Beautiful Lie. And he's working at the moment on a really intriguing mini-series for SBS that's called um, Safe Harbour. Um, but we won't really be talking about that because it's all under wraps. But please make Glendon welcome. And then uh, the rose uh, on the, the other side <laughs> is Dr. Lauren Rose Warren. Um, she is a senior lecturer in the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Melbourne. Now, she's also the author of eight books. I've only written two. I'm feeling a bit, uh, you know, um, inadequate. Um, but the most recent um, of her books is coming out in about a month, and it is about. Christmas films. How many Christmas films did you watch? 1,000. 1,000 oh. Christmas films. She knows pretty much every... 95 of them were regrettable, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's also about nostalgia, and so it's uh, Lauren's work on nostalgia that we're really keen to hear about tonight, because uh, what is the 80s to us now but a nostalgic um, period? So, let's just talk about why we've chosen to do the 80s tonight. So there's been a lot of um, pop cultural things, especially on Netflix, that have cited um, the films and TV of the 1980s. So Stranger Things 
is one of the first of those. Um, and we're also going to take a look at GLOW, which is the um, women's wrestling show. Um, maybe we'll have a clip from Stranger Things and then maybe we'll have a bit of a discussion about some of the tropes that we see in the clip. Because she's been dating that douchebag, Steve Harrington. Yep, she's turning into a real jerk. She's always been a real jerk. Uh-uh, she used to be cool. Like that time she dressed up as an elf for our elder free campaign? Four years ago! Just saying. Later. It was a seven. Huh? The wool. It was a seven. The Demogorgon. It got me. See you tomorrow. Okay, I thought we might have a bit more of the clip there, but no, it's, it's purely bike action <laughs> that we were looking at. So it's important that we were looking at bike action because that's such a trope in the 1980s, isn't it? Um, so you guys have both watched Stranger Things. Yeah. So what did, what did it remind you of um, in terms of its pop cultural antecedents? For me, it's Goonies, uh, yeah. Lean On Me, all of those for Stand By Me, those films from a period of time that kind of celebrate this notion of coming of age mm -hmm. and a time where it's supposed to have been easier. Now, I think that's a sort of political statement in the self because there's this constant um, uh, argument, particularly by conservatives, that there was a better time than now where people were freer and less politically correct and had more fun and could use the N-word and call women, you know, there was a yeah, time yeah. where things were better and it's always a time before us and I think some tropes of that, rather than getting to the actual politics of what the 80s was, instead we focus on things like bike, you know, when it was a safe time to ride your bike mm -hmm. after dark rather than now because now we're so fearful of crime, even though it's a safer time to ride your bike at night now than, ever, than the 80s, we don't have that perception so we, uh, we fetishise almost some of the innocent actions of the 80s and, and, and tell a story around, you know, the, the youthful freedoms that were once had. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I used to ride my bike around. I, I was a kid in the 80s. Um, and the thing is that it's no really, it's, it's, no, mm, it's no less safe now, I think. It's, kids have always been you know, at risk but from essentially the same things. It's not like there are more serial killers around now or more predators, more dangers. But for some reason, there's a perception that it's less safe now and that kids have got to be watched. So I think for me, uh, what I associate with the 80s is that idea of just being completely unsupervised. Um, the idea that Will, the, the kid from Stranger Things, can go missing and his mum doesn't kind of figure it out until the next morning uh, seems so 80s to me. 
Um, as the absence of the Twitter, you know, the Twitter post and the Facebook, where is my son? Yeah. And the ability to ring him. <laughs> and I think that's part of also the appeal as well is that the absence of technology also liberates it a little bit as well is the fact that we were doing things like, how did we arrange things like to meet someone without being able to say I'm running 15 minutes late? We take mm. the technology for granted and that sort of liberates the series as well a little bit from those shackles, if you like, of technology that we all love. Yeah, now Glendon, you were saying um, when we were talking about this earlier that your son loves Stranger Things but treats it almost like its own text, has no sense of the, the texts that have come before. Yeah, I, I mean, that scene, I think that's, I mean, when I watched that series the first time, that's kind of one of the hooks, that scene. Mm -hmm. I remember they got on their bikes and the lights turned on, I kind of went, Ollie, look, they're riding their BMX bikes. And he kind of, <laughs> like, and I, my eyes were widening watching it, going, this is so cool, it's so amazing. But his eyes were widening, I think, for different reasons. He didn't know, he, he's not, like, he's into Stranger Things, but doesn't really get the E.T. reference or the Goonie reference or anything like that. I think he's getting into what those kids are, which is independence and freedom and, and the fact that you can ride your bike at night as a kid, which yeah. Ollie isn't really allowed to. But, but, think, but there's, yeah. there's, there's something happening story-wise there that, that impresses me and gets me excited yeah. and also it's getting a 14-year-old excited. Well, what I also like about Stranger Things is that the kids have that sassy banter. I love sassy kid banter and it seems like a real trope of the 80s. Um, I think that we've got a clip um, of another bike. Oh, this is from the Goonies. Let's watch a bit from the Goonies and see if they have any sassy banter. <laughs> <laughs> The Goonies are good enough. What are you doing? It took a 376 lawnmower jobs to pay for that. It's his most favorite thing in the world. Now it's his most flattest thing in the world. Let's go. I'm going to hit you so hard when you wake up, your clothes are going to be out of stock. If you've seen The Goonies, there follows that wonderful scene where he sees the, the girl that he likes who's in the Porsche or, you know, the, uh, the car with the bad boy. And that's another thing that I really like about Stranger Things. They've got the, the douchebag preppy character. Um, and that's a, another real class issue that a lot of these films have. So The Goonies, they're, they're kind of poor kids 
and they are about to lose their homes to an unscrupulous developer or something. Um, and in Stranger Things as well, there's a kind of class issue with um, Joyce, played by Winona Ryder, sort of the impression is that she's the struggling single mom, works in the supermarket. And then there's um, the other family who have the much more luxurious two-storey house. Uh, for me, I feel like the 80s talked about class in a way that films these days shy away from. Is it talking about class, though, to show a house with a pool and a house that doesn't have a pool and not really get into what actually happened in the 80s, which was the 80s was a time of great division for people. It was a time of you know, immense uh, wealth disparity. It was a time where feminism was rolling back. It was the backlash of fe against feminism. You know, the successes of the 70s were being watered down or at least being uh, fought back against in the media. So. I don't know, I'm not sure I would totally agree that showing disparities necessarily a sort of treaties on it. Um, yeah. Well, maybe we're looking instead at the, the kind of visual language of class and not necessarily looking at class itself. I mean, because what's the, the main story in Stranger Things? It's a supernatural conspiracy story, essentially. Yeah. Um, but as well, that's, that's an interesting issue because we see that in ET as well, the idea of the creepy government yeah. who want to come in and, and mess with uh, the community. Um, the 80s seemed to be a, an era of real paranoia. And of course, it's a Cold War. And a Cold War narrative. Yeah. yeah story and of course we're seeing um, TV shows like The Americans as well that are exploring some of this, this Cold War stuff. But it's also because those themes translate now. We've got a new boogeyman now, yes, but we've yes. still got a heightened paranoia. Now, whether that heightened paranoia is our phones being tapped in a kind of Edward Snowden type of way, or whether it's because we're fearful of the unseen, unknown boogeyman of, of the terrorist, those themes translate really well and have, you know, basically since the 40s, any time in history when we're watching television or, or movies, those themes tap into anxieties that we've got as people. And I think Stranger Things does it in a way that's accessible to your son and to us and to older generations as well, because it speaks to universal fear and anxiety. Yeah, I mean, of course, Russia is the boogeyman again now, yeah. so um, it's quite convenient um, <laughs> in a way. Um, let's talk a little bit about tone, because I think one of the things that makes these shows so retro looking is the attention that's been paid to things like production design, set dressing, costumes, all that kind of thing. What, what for you, are the things that really scream 80s when you're watching something? So, Glenn, what, what would you say? Well, having made some period television, <laughs> um, there's things that I notice that I, or that I, I know that where the budget lies. Like, so things like um, Stranger Things, which is, there's a lot of sets involved. I look at things like light switches, mm -hmm. powerpoints, um, uh, the, the little snips you put on, have on windows. They're things that definitely in Australian television and most, most productions that we're not designing from the ground up, they're things that you'll never be able to replace. Because it's not like a, um, it, it involves electricians essentially. Sure. So I'm always looking out for light switches, um, tap handles, uh -huh. like not so much, like wallpaper, the fruit bowls, the carpet, the rugs, the clothes are kind of easy to recreate, but it's the, I don't know, it's the things that have uh, been updated in houses for OCH health and safety reasons <laughs> um, that are incredibly hard to change. Uh, and, and actually, speaking about 
specific um, production detail, one thing we got right between series two, series one and series two of Puberty Blues, which is late 70s, mm -hmm. in series one we had blue tack posters on the walls, in series two you'll notice that thumbtacks started going ah. everywhere. So it's things like that that I've always been quite where obsessed do you, with. Where do you start doing your research? Is it your own memories? Is it archival research? Um, yeah, well, the, the thing about, uh, say like, um, I want to say, because we're watching Stranger Things, I'm talking about forces. Let me see if I can bring up some of the, oh, we've got more, got more bikes. Let's skip past the bikes. Oh, we've got glow now. We'll skip past that. And I want to get to, oh, let's, let's show this scene, which is um, Winona Ryder and the telephone. So this is, this is a great example of maybe some retro technology. So that's a problem that we don't tend to have anymore with phones, is it the cord not reaching? Um, even with some of those almost 1960s type TV shows, they always seem to have those wall-mounted phones with the extremely, extremely yeah. long cords and they're kind of getting tangled up in them. Um, let me see if I can bring up some of these. I'll go past that one. Uh, okay, so I just, I've got a bunch of pictures here that's... We've been looking at the American side of the 80s, but I've got a few kind of Australian things. Maybe you might recognise them. One thing that I liked about this was that um, it's got a quote from Quentin Tarantino. If we'd grown up in Australia, BMX bandits would have been our goonies. <laughs> <laughs> I really do like Quentin Tarantino's appreciation for Ozploitation. Um, you know, he really does put his um, money where his mouth is. Um, he has a lot of these old Australian films himself. Um, but of course, that's kind of the 80s Australian vision of kids on bikes, isn't it? Um, and does anyone know who this guy is? Dougie, Dougie the pizza boy. Um, what's that? <laughs> it's a beautiful phone with a beautiful can of tab on the top as well. Um, I, I thought the tab was a nice yeah. touch. I like that the, the phone calls cost 30 cents. Um, Remember that stuff? Now, when you're doing these kind of um, period things, and do people have to pay with prop money and you have the, the yeah, old-fashioned um, prop money? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can go and uh, buy old money. Like, that's quite easy to, to get that stuff. Um, it's more like the hardest things is, is supermarkets because oh, right, everything to like has to be controlled. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we did have a, a uh, there was a very early discussion with Puberty Blues that we were going to have empty, like, you know, sort of green screen um, cornflakes packets that were going to try and oh, do right. product placement for yeah, cornflakes yeah. and map old boxes onto, onto, onto these boxes. But um, it's incredibly hard. Anything, anything on uh, that's bulk, like that you need a lot of and, a, and like rows of things is always sure. incredibly hard. Um, oh, spoky dokies. <laughs> um, 
anyone remember kids. the Henderson kids? Totally. More BMX. Um, Henderson kids had so many later on very well-known Australian actors in it as well. It's Mendo in the middle. Mendo in the middle. It's a TV show you didn't watch. Um, <laughs> um, and of course, our um, teen superstars of the 80s on Young Talent Time. Um, but here are some of the, the pictures that we've got. Um, what, they're a mixture of sort of research yeah, I mean, and actual... Yeah, like when I first got involved with Puberty Blues uh, and not being from New South Wales really, not knowing uh, Cronulla Shire or the Southern Shire, I just went there and started documenting, I guess, what through my lens, what was period, like what, what, what are the things that we didn't have to change and kind of beaches and water, even though the beach has changed a lot in Cronulla, um, the water hasn't. So Has the beach changed? Uh, it, it's, these places haven't changed too much. The beach has changed, of uh, course, uh, beaches change. Um, the, uh, there used to be massive sand dunes uh, oh, right. behind there, like if we're being period correct I love the that time. soap, yeah. the, the green soap. Yeah. And a lot of these photos were just, you know, taken on uh, reccees of looking for houses and places and things that, you know, that we, where we might be shooting and things mm -hmm. that were already untouched. And it was quite amazing how many uh, locations or, you know, houses we go into, people live in them that were kind of like these time capsules. Mm. Um, you'd even open up drawers and, and cupboards and all the clothes would be 70s. And, amazing. You know, the, there'd be notepads and pens and stuff. It was almost like they were living in these little mini bubbles, which was beautiful for us. We could... We could um, grab them. I always yeah. like it when you look on uh, real estate websites, and sometimes you find time capsule houses yeah. that way as well. Yeah. I mean, this sort of thing. What's uh, very hard is now civic compliance things like the the kind of not so much here, but like concrete. Um, everything now has stainless steel poles and bars oh, like right where you right. walk around. Like that didn't exist back then. So you're trying to shoot around those things. Um, it's pretty hard to put a horse on a beach these days, but we had, went to a lot of trouble to do that. <laughs> and those, bikinis. yeah, crocheted bikinis as well. Yeah. That's very simple. Oh, panel van. Panos. Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at these, um, <laughs> I love that one, the dinner. Um, when, you, when you're trying to find the, the right tone, the kind of, um, not just the details, but almost the, the feel of a particular period, um, is it just something that you know when you see? Or do you use um, pop culture from that period as a reference? Um, sometimes. I mean, I try to avoid it as much as possible because it's very easy to, I don't know, cut to a shot of a macrame wall hanging or something like that to say it's it's a period of time. Sure. Rosa, I think it's more, well, unless you cut to a close-up of ham and pie. It was more interesting, I think, like looking at social views or, or, or the way things are treated. Mm -hmm. um, to you know, to set a tone. Like, um, I think there's a clip. The I think it's the one called "The World," which there's a lot of things going on in that. That um, I don't know. Like, they're they're, they're very. Uh, they feel like very contemporary issues that we're seeing. But the fact that we were showing them through the veil of the '70s made them a lot mm -hmm. more easier to talk about on screen. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I think nostal nostalgic television or n nostalgic storytelling is a way of almost uh, making uh, hard topics or, or hard social issues a bit more easy to digest. Like the, mm -hmm. it's the spoonful of sugar, if you like, that helps the medicine go down. 
Yeah, so can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? So we can talk about gritty ideas if yeah. we can safely quarantine, much as Lauren was saying earlier, if we can quarantine those ideas uh, to the past and suggest that they, we no longer have those issues, then yeah. it's palatable, but it's not if the, the story is taking place in the present day? Well, I mean, pu Puberty Blues, for, for example, was a, a series about... There's the phone with the yeah. long cord. Um, a lot of the stuff that we dealt with and, and really went into a lot of detail in Puberty Blues, uh, if we made it as a contemporary television show, it would have been seen as uh, incredibly bleak and, uh, and, um, and kind of social realism. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that what we dealt with wasn't incredibly bleak. It was, it was, it was bleak. But there's something about it, there's a softening that happens when you look at it. And it, I think because it doesn't feel like it's right next to you, it feels like it's over there and in the past. But it kind of hopefully creeps up on you and you realise that, that, you know, uh, a lot of the themes of, and storylines of Puberty Blues were things that were incredibly relevant and felt like that even though they were happening 70, in the 70s, they are actually happening in your own world very close to you. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's talk maybe a bit more about this idea of nostalgia because, Lauren, this is a pet topic of yours. Yeah. So nostalgia isn't just the past, is it? It's something different. It's not different. the past. It's our imagined past. And I think that's an important point because I think we tend to blur history with nostalgia as though looking at the Goonies, oh, that was what our history was like in the 80s. It's an aesthetic. It's taking aesthetics from a period in time mm -hmm. and the music and the cars and, you know, the, the trappings of the period. But to pretend that that's actually, you know, there's actually a genre of nostalgia films. You know, have a look at Happy Days or Grease. Yes. These are cultural products that sell us on an imagined version of history. Fortunately or, for, or unfortunately, depending on what side of politics you are, those images somehow feed into a reality. So you have politicians trying to tell us, remember those good old days where Ralph Melt from Potsy, we used to sit around and no, none of this actually ever happened. <laughs> That's television. But we've got this sort of sold idea to us of a time that was better, that morals were better, that the things were, were more pure. And I think it's important to think that uh, an undercurrent of nostalgia is a longing for a past that never actually happened and there's a sort of rose-tinted aspect of that as well, that even if it was a harsher past, and I think to the United States, America does a lot of films set during the Great Depression, a wretched time in their history, but because everyone survives in the films, it mm. almost gets this kind of Victorian Charles Dickens aspect to it. We were poor but happy, <laughs> unlike now where we might have wealth but we're morally degraded because there's this notion that the past... For some reason, that there's a motherhood statement that it's universally a happier time because it's gone mm. and because there's almost no way that you could prove it was better. So you get to make these statements and it's hard to challenge them as well. Yeah. Now, oh, that's, where am I going to go from this? Because there's just so much to talk about. I think that I wanted to go back and have a look at some of the clips that I skipped over before because I wanted to talk about the idea of music. Um, because and the bike scene did it really well as well with yeah, that electronic the, music the, um, the Cindy Lauper yeah. but I wanted to have maybe um, no we've already seen this one no we wanted to we wanted to watch this one um, uh, I, I wanted to talk about the idea of montage in particular and maybe we can talk a bit about how music helps set a a time and place to no during fractional distillation hydrocarbons are separated according to their melting point Ooh, it's boiling points. That's what I meant. Yeah, that's not what you said. No. No? Oh, do you need, 
Do you need help or? in my room and then get another notch on no, your belt. Nancy, no. I'm not Lori or Amy or Becky. Irene, you're not a slut. That's not what I'm saying. You know, you're so cute when you lie. Shut up. Bad Steve. Bad, don't do that to Miss Nancy. You're an idiot, Steve Harrington. You're a beautiful Nancy Wheeler. Compared to the rate of inorganic reactions, the rate of organic reactions. So the swelling uh, strains of Toto. Um, uh, but I wanted to show you as well a clip from Glow, which is a different vision of the 1980s as well. Um, so Glow, um, hands, show of hands, who has seen it? Yeah, oh good, you're all across this stuff already. Um, there's a kind of interesting line between the, the grubby everyday 1980s that's depicted in the behind the scenes and the glamorous sort of um, over the top characters that these women are portraying in the ring. But I wanted to show you an example of like the quintessential 1980s musical genre, which is the sports training montage. Even Rocky had a montage. Oh, hang on. That was Puberty Blues, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, oh, where, where was it? Back, the, back was it? There it is, okay. Let's do it again. No, no. no. I, I was early. Let her jump on you. Okay. That was good. Watch it, Hansy. Two, one. <laughs> Yeah, I felt it. Oh, no. Are you okay? You hit her. Yeah, stick your arm into it. You don't hit her. Don't be afraid. 
In the, in the words of Lisa Simpson, it's as choreographed as any ballet. Um, but when you're doing period drama yourself, do you consider the, the role of music? Uh, yeah, you definitely do. I can say, like, that scene's really long. Mm. And there's something about the way that, that music carries it. <laughs> I, I, I actually wanted to keep going. I could have kept more, even though it didn't feel like much was happening. Mm. <laughs> um, I think uh, it's kind of, it's almost undercutting that, um, the montage genre, because they never really get any better. No, no, no. Um, there's, uh, well, I mean, music uh, has an incredibly powerful effect uh, with a nostalgic idea of remembering. Uh, it's far more powerful, a, a track, a, Toto's Africa, mm. far more powerful of bringing back images and feelings of what it was back in the day than any image would ever do. There's something more, much more potent about music. Uh, and, that, and shows like that definitely know how to use it like in, in that sense. Yeah, and of course, do you think that you need to have experienced the music in its original context? Or is it enough just to have that retro feel to it. You know how some people feel nostalgic for periods that they never even lived in? But part of that is also, for example, I've got a bit of nostalgia around Graceland, uh -huh. Paul Simons. Now that, I was too young for it to be something I would choose to listen to when it came out, but it was on the in the car on road trips with my parents. So that also, the notion of the music your parents play yeah. as well becomes nostalgic for us. It's not necessarily the music that takes us, you know, to our first sexual experiences or whatever, but it's time that takes us to another time. And that's really part of why um, advertising loves, you know, you can almost pick who the product is targeted to based on the music that they're using. And part of that is, is because it's a shortcut. They know, you know, there's plenty of research that talks about smell being the most potent way mm -hmm. to, you know, there's perfumes, for example, that I will never want to smell again because they take you back to certain times. Television can't yet give us that, but what smell it can do it. is the second most uh, strongest trigger for nostalgia, which is music. And they've mm. done lots of experiments that, you know, Adele, for example, Adele is contemporary, but there's parts of the style of Adele that's deliberately taken from other points in history, plus the solo vocalist on its own, has a way of bringing about melancholy for us. So we associate melancholy with nostalgia because nostalgia, the past is gone, we can't yes, go back yes, there. Yes. And they kind of work together psychologically. And musicians know this. This is part of the, if you like, elegance of writing a hit track. It has to be able to touch us somewhere and we don't know why. And we don't know why it feels familiar, yet it does and we're crying even though we've never heard it before and we have no sentimental attachment to it yet we're feeling all this stuff because that's actually quite carefully orchestrated and film does the same yeah I mean for you what do you think and um, this is a question for both of you which do you think is better at producing these emotional responses uh, a score or a jukebox a needle drop kind of a soundtrack 
that's a really good question. Um, well, definitely in those two situations, I, like those scenes wouldn't go as long. Definitely that montage would mm. not go as long if you had traditional score. Like it just wouldn't happen. Um, there's something about... Well, it becomes th like there's a, a music video. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's, I mean, that's a really good question. I think score is really good at underpinning internal, you know, mm -hmm. an internal rhythm or an internal character decision or internal drama. Yeah. Whereas the needle drop, I think, is about pushing story forward. Uh, in, in that case, like, we really need to fill three minutes. <laughs> so let's just put a great track on and enjoy it. But, I mean, for every, like, music, for every situation you could say, like, that's the way it should be done, you'll find a great example where it mm -hmm. doesn't. It's, it's the opposite of that. Okay. I want to now move to Australia. I'd sort of jumped the gun before um, because I was so keen to get to those wonderful photos of yours. But let's watch that clip from Puberty Blues. Yep. Here we go. Do you like my jeans? Asa. Five finger discounts. I was packing death. I put them on in the change room and I come out. Security guard follows me all the way to the front. I'm thinking, oh, I'm so dead. But nah. He's only checking out my ass. Yeah, they're nice. Slow by and think. Can't believe you're full of rain. Are you gonna finish or what? Jaw's killing me. Sorry. Yeah. possible I'm too drunk to drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I certainly am, oh, You right oh. back there, doll? Hey, I've got an idea. Follow me. Let's go. We've got to park. <laughs> You're close to the gutter? I'm oh, fine. 
Why did you drop Ben? David, I'm warning you. He used to always give me a red skin. And then I just saw him and he Chinese burned me. Look, I prepared to put stuff on him. Ow! Mom, she hit me! He's being an idiot. Enough. Oh, stop! Settle down or you'll walk home. Might be safer if we did. <laughs> no, you can't! Oh, you young people, you're so conservative! Come on! Come on! lovely just in that one clip you can see how many social attitudes have uh, changed since that time but we still never want to see our parents naked that's the <laughs> no. universal yeah. truth throughout throughout I found, time i found myself feeling very worried for them you know keep your eyes on the road are you strapped in was this before seatbelts were compulsory in the back seat i think so yeah i mean those the cars that we use quite often would arrive without seatbelts in them oh, yeah. it was such a strange uncomfortable feeling these days to get into a car and not even put a seatbelt on but that was I mean I grew up without wearing a seatbelt. I remember when it was starting to become a thing that you had to wear a seatbelt um, but I think that's you know that, that we were able to sort of not 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 that we ever wanted to make an issue about drink driving or anything but it's it's interesting we can all sit around and sort of laugh about that but there's something about that's what I mean about the veil or the arms distance um, to certain topics that we covered that you kind of, like, it's kind of funny because it is funny. It's, it's cut and it's performed in a comedic way. But it kind of, like, that's one of the things that I think is probably better now than what it was then, even though you look back at it nostalgically. I'm kind of glad that we wear seatbelts and that drink driving isn't <laughs> something that's encouraged or laughed at amongst ourselves that's as much. That's right. I mean, it almost reminded me, like, of an anti-drink driving commercial. I was waiting for the other car to come swinging the around the corner. Yeah, yeah. At the end. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, I wanted to talk specifically about Australia versus the United States. Um, and not just in the sense of the America's Cup. Um, sorry, that was a 1980s joke. Um, <laughs> a good one. So much of our pop culture that we grew up with here in Australia is US pop culture. And so a lot of our cultural references are American. Um, so how do we distinguish our own ideas of the past? Are we sort of doomed to live in this pan-American uh, soup? Um, for instance, we get all the Stranger Things references, um, even though none of them are local references. Is the past, is retro always that kind of de-specified kind of cultural reference? Um, I think it's a mix. Uh, there's obviously real cultural specificity involved in doing something like Puberty Blues mm -hmm. uh, or, or good period drama. I think it should be really specific to the point where maybe you don't even understand what they're saying. Like, the, like even looking at that Goonie stuff uh, and definitely the, those scenes, um, they're, they're so heavily referenced about specific cultural things to the point where I don't think the audience actually knows what they're saying, but they get the, they get the idea, they get a, a sense of what they're saying. But at the same time, there were certain things 
so when I grew up, I grew up in like in a country town in New South Wales, but somehow I knew exactly what Kiss was doing. <laughs> I just somehow knew there was no internet. There was no one. I had two stations of maybe I had Molly Meldrum on Countdown letting us know. But I've always been fascinated how pop culture seems to be able to hit people exactly where they want to hit them. Like they somehow like a country kid. Seven-year-old living in Tamworth, New South Wales, knew everything about Gene Simmons. Mm. Or, um, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe it's. Oh, sorry. I was, I was going to say I knew exactly uh, what the Empire Strikes Back was going to be about. But I, but I knew I'd, I'd only read one magazine article, but I'd sort of poured over it. So those sorts of very specific things, the big things, hit really square between the eyes. Uh, but, but on the outside of that, I think holding on to cultural specificity, like things that are very specific to our culture, is also incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about some of the ways in which you would access culture at that time. And I'm at the risk of becoming nostalgic myself. Remember when you had to go to a record shop and then the cool person behind the counter would treat you like dirt and, and then finally they'd let you know what the cool things to, to buy were? Except if maybe you had a cool older brother or sister and then yeah. they told you what the cool things were. But these days, kids have access to the entire pop cultural archive. So what does the past mean? Maybe, Lauren, this is a good question um, for you to answer. When we've got the entire past available to us like this. Yeah, and this is something that you know researchers have been grappling with. There was a time in history, it's hard to imagine, where if you made a remake of something, the audience is very unlikely to have seen the original because of lack of, you know, um, either it wasn't on video or the internet wasn't, you know. Yeah. Now there's this time where it's almost guaranteed that the audience is going to see the original and the remake at the same time mm. even. And this idea, the same as with, you know, if, if um, Stranger Things is mentioned in the same breath as Goonies, the kid just has to go online and they're going to see Goonies and make that connection. And that sort of clashing or, or convergence of the past, or at least movies from the past mm -hmm. versus a representation of the past in the present coming together kind of create this I don't know it's a blur but it's also this sort of I don't know I, th I see it as more as a heightened notion of fiction and I think this is where I'm not so concerned because I'm not a filmmaker is this idea of accuracy or whether it's true to an Australian uh, experience because your experience in the country would have been very different from mine growing up in Melbourne versus other people in the room and I think also there's there's a lot of anxieties particularly I think it's a sort of island anxiety that we've got in Australia about are we too influenced by other cultures you know if you watch 70s Australian TV our accents have changed mm -hmm. you know that's that's fact now we could sit there and sit and blame you know um, coca colonization of the world <laughs> Or we can say, well, we've all heartily embraced that. You know, it's, it's funny that we've got this anxiety around particularly American popular culture, almost like, oh, you know, that's yet another thing we're getting from the Yanks. Yet we're the ones watch. It's, it's, it's this weird relationship we've got where we're almost obsessive about preserving what it means to be Australian, even though I'm not sure we know what that means, and yet heartily embracing American popular, popular culture and thinking they're actually both intertwined in our past. You know, Goonies is just as much of, of, of my past as when you said the America's Cup, I actually didn't know what you were talking about until then I had a vague notion, I think we won, something happened, blah, blah, blah. I don't know <laughs> about that stuff, but I do know about Cindy Lauper. And I do know, and my entire childhood was grown up in Australia. So I think the 
the experience of the 80s in Australia is going to be very different from person to person, but it's also going to be very Americanised. Therefore, I'm not sure that there is a kind of authentic way to show that on screen. I think it's going to be different for every everybody. I look at some of those puberty blues images and I think of Bill Henson. And oh, that's yeah. because mm. I think, A, beautiful um, images of adolescence, but also... Uh, a lot of the way that you see sort of commercial photography, which I find aesthetically pleasing, it doesn't take me back to a time in my past though. It takes me back to a different time in popular culture. And I think that that's probably a very intel you know, overthinking type of answer, but um, nostalgia works on a number of levels and it's not just about taking us back to our past, but the notion of a past that's vague and almost ever changing as well. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can um, end our part of the discussion by talking about remakes because uh, Puberty Blues is a remake and so many things here in pop culture, the, a new Blade Runner movie out, there's a new Stephen King's It in cinemas. It seems like the 80s is um, being the, the zeitgeisty or even the 70s before it, um, the period that needs to, to get re-envisaged. Do you think that we need to talk do these stories? Every generation needs its own version of these stories? Because, you know, there's always that um, critique that, why can't we have original stories? Yeah. And that every time you remake uh, a superhero film or another A Christmas Carol, a scriptwriter <laughs> cries because their material's not getting made. It's an economic decision and it's also a risk aversion strategy because mm. they know that half the branding is already done if you make a title that's already been made before. There's some, for some other work I've been doing, there's They've done studies over the past 10 years about new content in top 10 box office and we're talking something like 15% is new content. The rest is either a franchise or connected to an established title or a version of another material that has gone before. That's mind-blowing because I think a lot of us who watch a lot of indie films would forget these aren't the films that are making the money. The films that make the money mm -hmm. for Hollywood are franchise films that build on something that has already been done. And I think that risk aversion... Uh, I think is, is, is dangerous territory, but it's also been the way things have been going in Hollywood for at least two decades. Do you think that it's true that by revisiting some of these intellectual properties from 20, 30, 40 years ago, we have a new perspective on the past, or are we only ever grappling with our own imagined ideas, um, the, our nostalgia about um, this imagined place? Uh, I think so. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about the, the idea of remaking things with, with that in mind. Puberty Blues was like a... I don't know if anyone's ever read the original book that it was based on, a novella. It was like 90 pages. I think if it was written now, it'd be really hard to get it up. Like, you just wouldn't be able to get that story. Um, like, if it was... Maybe if it was written by two 15-year-old girls as the original Puberty Blues was, now I think it would be really tricky, mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say. The fact that it, there, was, it was already, it, there was already interest, we weren't really interested in the film because it's its own version mm -hmm. almost. We went back to the original source material, which, which was this 90-page novella. Um, it has a very different... I, I don't know, as a source material... I think, sorry, what I was going to say, if it was made today, I'd still want to make it. Yeah. It wasn't really the nostalgia that, that drew me to that material. Mm -hmm. It was more the tone and the idea that that you know that 
two girls in particular acted that way and did those things and it was kind of half shocking but I was kind of on their side all the time. That was the, that was the, the story I was interested in. Um, but the nostalgia element was always, it was kind of like the icing on the cake. It was almost easier to sell through for those reasons. It's really hard to, to you know, put a show on Channel 10 that has a lot of... Teens. Yeah, or, or I was going to say, not, not so much even teen sex, but like date rape and like, mm. you know, um, uh, some of the more darker material, but it was a lot easier, the fact that it was already a pre-existing uh, document, uh, you know, a, a novella. Yeah, Australian television tends to love that kind of 70s, 80s period, things like Underbelly or the Paper Giants miniseries or the other miniseries that are about the figures in Australian popular culture in the 70s and 80s. Like, but um, I don't think it's a, it's a surprise that the 70s and 80s are what we're doing now, though. Because if you think about it, in the 70s, they were all about doing the 50s. Mm. And I think part of it is because you've got kids, so it's trying to tap into your audience and your kids' audience. And if it's things like Stranger Things or films like that that have an offshoot of merchandising as well, I think there's a financial incentive as well because if a producer can get dual audiences of two at least generations watching a show that's great that's a license to print money as opposed to you know uh, television which was much more segmented at what you know at some stages in our history where there were shows for kids shows for adults and not a lot of shows that were doing sort of double duty and I think Stranger Things is a good example that um is able to tap into the nostalgia we have for that generation mm -hmm. as well as potentially appeal to children. I think if you think of who's adults now, of, of the kids of the 80s and 90s have gone on to have kids now, that's the reason we're seeing the 80s and 90s because you've got adults who have all the adult responsibilities of paying the mortgage, making sure the kids have food, whatever it is that you do with kids. <laughs> that stuff is hugely, that's, that's a stressor now. So you have something that appeals to when life was easier for us which is this imagine riding your bike at night and potentially our children can watch that as well and it's I think you'll see in a couple of years time you'll be fetishizing the 90s etc etc oh well people it's, in their 20s started, are already doing that yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well maybe now's a good time to open it up to questions from the audience now do we have any roving microphones yes yet? right at the back so if you've got a question maybe raise your hand and we'll come over to you Talking about um, risk uh, the tendency to be risk averse at the moment, it feels like in Hollywood and in culture generally, there seems to be a lot of Stephen King um, shows and movies that are being made. And I don't know if it just feels like it's like a lot right now, if it's always been the case, but what do you think about his appeal particularly as a source for remake? I've just finished watching Mr Mercedes. So I, you're, you're right in the sense that that's the case, except for the fact that it's hard because Stephen King's had a really long history, has been in the bestseller lists for a really long time, and there's a lot of poor quality adaptations of his stuff. So there's almost an infinite... And he's actually incredibly productive. If you look at his, you know, um, uh, bibliography, there are a lot of material there for... For adapting. Equally, he's a known brand. Stephen King, the, the idea that this is an adaption of a Stephen King uh, book, short story, etc. There's a ready-made audience there who will tune in and watch it because Stephen King's name's attached. So I think part of that is that it cuts through a lot of the marketing to sell you on a new author and a new series as well. You're right in the sense that I think Stephen King seems to be having a bit of a moment at the moment, but I think that's partly attributable to the talent he's got of telling stories that feel 
timeless. And that's partly because we didn't really talk about it today, but particularly American popular culture has an obsession with small towns. Mm. Now that's, we could talk about, I have a Christmas book coming out that has a chapter <laughs> on small towns, but this obsession with the small town I think helps make a period seem like it's almost small towns being cut off from the city, the polluting values of the city. Stephen King sets everything almost in New England um, and it's creepy as hell there, I've lived there, creepy. But that idea of these sort of small untouched towns no matter when you sh shoot those those um, that material, it seems almost like it's saying something new, and I think that's an appeal that his material it has that means they're not going to stop anytime soon. We're going to see his material uh, keep getting better. Also, because it, again, if we watch it, it validates the decision to make it, and that's why you see the Marvel films keep getting made because. We might be tired, oh, I've got another one. Haven't, haven't I just seen that one? It's because we still buy the tickets, validating the production decision and the cycle starts again. It's interesting, though, that they've um, sort of brought forward the recent It adaptation to the um, late 80s when the book was set in the 50s and when they made it in 1990, that adaptation was set at that same time. So um, they're quite calculating because when I saw It, they were the same age as me, the kids in that film, and so I was interpolated by that film in a way that I had never been in the past. I'd always seen it as, you know, exactly like you were saying, Lauren, that um, hermetic small town. Yeah. And in the case of It, of course, it's an evil small town. So. Um, but yeah, when they made Carrie, when they remade Carrie, they made it modern mm. so that we could bring in the, uh, the cyber bullying aspect. And I think that's an interesting, again, we didn't really talk about it, but the idea of bullying is such a common theme in these 80s films. It, we almost look at that as a quaint because now we're, we're revenge porning you. And that idea that now there are so many new ways to torture people, the idea of the thug tying you to the chair, that seems almost quaint. <laughs> Yeah, we have a question over here. Hi. Um, I was thinking it's quite interesting in terms of, um, like, Stranger Things is partially science fiction, supernatural, <coughs> and, uh, and something like the new remakes of Star Wars as well. Like, they kind of look at the 80s version of what... And Blade Runner too, like, the 80s idea of the future. So, like, I was just wondering what you thought about that... Um, kind of past looking onto the future and how, like, what people, like, from the 80s thought about the future. Um, yeah, I mean, Blade Runner is a good example because um, a lot of people have been talking about how Pan Am still has branding, um, Atari has branding, even though um, Pan Am's gone out of business and Atari is a much more niche brand than it was in 1982. Um, but I like that film's commitment to its predecessor's idea of what the future was going to be like, that almost um, the retro futurism. Um, I love retro futurism as a, a genre, the idea of... Um, older generations' ideas of what the future was going to be like, I find quite seductive. But it's also good at how they also don't pretend that everything that you have in the 80s is brand new. Mm. That's one of the ways to pick a not very good um, period piece, is where everything in the house was bought yesterday. Yeah. When in fact our homes are always a cobbled together of a whole lot of generations, which is what Blade Runner, the original, did incredibly well. 40 style clothing with a, you know, a mix of other things. Now, that was an exaggeration in terms of... but. I've seen recently, I was looking at old photos of students at the University of Melbourne from the 70s. 
It could have been today, except for the haircuts and the, and the cut of jeans. Mm. This idea that everyone was wearing the latest fashion, you know, that in the 70s everyone was wearing tie-dye, it didn't happen. That, that was the exception rather than the rule. We tend to be more a blurring of, of decades in you know, houses, in aesthetics. Yeah, well, what about something like Star Wars, though? Are you talking about something like Rogue One? Like where the prequels kind of failed and then kind of what Disney's doing and how that succeeded is that they're reverting back to like old cinematic techniques. So like using sure. puppets instead of CGI and mm -hmm. trying to capture that aesthetic of, um, I guess, the 70s and 80s imagining of the future. Yeah, Glendon, did you want to talk to Well, I, th I think there's that, that there's the pendulum is swinging back to doing things in camera. Um, I think talking about Bill Henson, I think about Jim Henson <laughs> and, uh, and the idea of, um, sort of a slightly off topic, but Jim Henson's very period dude. Uh, he, he had a thing about puppets, which I think is, you know, if you look at Yoda from Empire Strikes Back as opposed to Yoda from whatever, wherever he turned up, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he turned up again. When you see a puppet, which is made of cloth and glue and plastic, as an audience, any kind of puppet, something happens we, we we want it to be alive and there's that really that that's 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 where the magic is there's a piece of there's a it's it's incomprehensible like what that is uh how you measure that but if you know frank oz with his hand in a latex yoda is is, is the realest thing i'll ever see whereas all of the technology and all of the focus and rooms full of people pushing pixels around will never be able to capture uh, the same thing, even though arguably digital Yoda looks realer, there's a spirit and a heart in, in puppet Yoda that is, is hard to quantify. Um, mm. and, and, but there is something about an audience's relationship with, with something that's real uh, that we see and that actually we want it to be alive. And whether it's a puppet or a spaceship, um, I think there's something, there's a trick in your brain that says, you know, that spaceship is real digital princess Leia isn't you know like it's just that, they that call it un un uncanny valley or whatever it's still like, got a way to go yeah, hasn't it yeah but you know maybe if there was a puppet of princess Leia um, <laughs> sort of glad that in there but there, there would be almost there'd be part of us that would believe that that's princess Leia more than a digital version if that makes sense I'm, I'm hypothesizing but, I would love you know. to see puppet princess Leia Maybe it's a spin-off series. Well, you know, <laughs> Harry Fisher's not around. Maybe we could have... In it's much the... cheaper to do with puppets. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, do we have other questions? Hello. Um, coming off just what you were just saying about Star Wars and things like that, and um, do you think this return to the 80s, at least from perhaps the consumers or people's idea of what consumers like, of returning to tactile, analogue sort of things like in-camera effects and puppets, is a reaction to people being inured or getting sick of visual effects from computer and things like that, which people kind of get bombarded with, with the adventure films and superheroes yeah. and return to the past yeah. ways? Yeah, I, I saw um, Dunkirk recently. Yeah. I saw it at IMAX and I just sat there, this is a period film, and I went, man, that visual effects, that CGI plane <laughs> is incredible. I can't, like, that looks real. And then later on I went and found out it, it was is, real. Yeah. <laughs> so there was this, there was a, you know, there was a thing about me as an audience thinking this must be fake because that's how you do it these yeah. days. To the point where I've had to do CGI boats in the past. It's incredibly hard to do CGI boats. And I saw some of the boats in Dunkirk 
And I went, man, I'm so glad that Christopher Nolan doesn't get it right as well. That looks <laughs> fake ass. <laughs> and then later on, I went to American Cinematographer. I was reading up on how they did it. And I was like, no, that was a real boat. Mm. So there was something about, <laughs> about my relationship as an audience. Mm. Like, what is real, what isn't? Uh, and I, I, think, I think there's, there's, a, there's an aesthetic... And I think it's a little bit talking about how a puppet in some way is more effective. Like a plane... Yeah. I would say that some of the things, say, in Dunkirk, if, when you see... I don't know who's seen it. Like you see a plane fall in, like smash in the water. Yeah. It wasn't as bold as what I thought it would be. Like yeah, it didn't have the drama. The top, it ju- yeah. kind of just made a little splash. And it's, part of me is like, well, where, why doesn't it... Doesn't it turn into a ball of flames <laughs> at some point? But there was a sort of a realism there. And I think because we're surrounded by digital stuff everywhere, I think we uh, are not only craving nostalgia but craving authenticity and Mm. and realness. A lot of those superhero films are so overstuffed with effects as well. Um, One of my friends uses the term digital confetti. It just feels like your eye does not know where to look. and so maybe one thing about these uh, practical effects is that they're more deliberate. You do know where to look. You know what, where the money is gone and where the director is going, check this out, man. I spent ages with the little boat. But that's that point on authenticity as well. It's also manufactured. You know, I, I look at Instagram where you'll have these Instagram celebrities go through a stage where there'll be, you know, lots of flattering shots and then all of a sudden they'll have a crisis of conscience. I want you to see the real me now. And they'll have this mea culpa, I'm sorry I ruined the lives of every 13-year-old girl. I'm sorry, but now you're going to see the real me. That's also cultivated. Mm. And I think it's important, this idea of what constitutes authenticity. Producers know what we consider authentic now, and that's also heavily stylized. So I think, because reality TV has ruined the idea of what's fly on the wall, what's actual gritty realism now, and now we seem to think we know what, that we'll know what authentic is when we see it. Well, so much of it, I suppose, is about the, the textures and the, the camera gestures, you know, that shaky cam stuff, which yeah. itself has become such a cliche now. But remember when um, Steadicam was new and people's minds were just totally blown that the camera was not on a track? Mm. Um, Maybe we we are just waiting for the next new kind of realism that will be interpreted by us as more authentic, but then future generations are going to look back on it. Well, think of blood in terms of horror films, for example. Real blood doesn't look the way we think it will on screen, so they have to do, you know, fake blood, not the we advocate using real blood in. (laughs) But that idea of we've now got it in our head of what authentic blood spill looks like, even though it's highly orchestrated, and there's so many examples of that where the fake has become our notion of what Mm. authentic is, and that's shaped all kinds of things, from food production to... To dinosaurs. To dinosaurs. Um, No, seriously, in Jurassic Park, um, the the dinosaurs were depicted the way that um, they had been depicted 20 years earlier in the then groundbreaking um, illustrations. But now, of course, we know that dinosaurs had feathers and they were brightly coloured, but Jurassic World can't go depicting that. They've got to have those scaly monsters that we're used to seeing. Um, Yeah. Further questions? Oh, down the front here. In your profession and as audience members, what is your take on when they do a remake like Ghostbusters and it's flipped to be an all-female cast? 
I, for me, I didn't like the new Ghostbusters. It wasn't because of the female cast. It was because it was too beholden to the old Ghostbusters. It never really, for me, developed its own storyline. I loved those characters. I thought that the actors were terrific. I would just have loved for them to go off and do their own story that didn't have to do all those constant callbacks to the original one with all the, the um, cameos from the old cast members. I know that people love that. Oh my God, it's Janine from the first one. But um, for me, it, it felt wearying. It felt like being on an old rickety roller coaster. You know where the track is. There are no surprises to it. Um, I don't know. What about you guys? I was thinking more... I haven't seen that Ghostbusters. It sounds... sounds uh, like, I think if you're going to remake something, there has to be the right intent behind it, like a reimagining or... or uh, I haven't seen current It or old It, but is the new It, does it feel like it's shot for shot like the old It, or, or does it feel like a modern take on what was, you know, when I was a kid, like a really popular film? Mm. Well, it was really hard because the clown was so iconic in the old It. And so the new clown had to figure out how his performance was going to um, be different and how his costume was going to look different and how the clown was going to manifest. Um, and I found it sufficiently different. Um, but for me... But story, I, like tone-wise, yeah, like tone was Tone-wise, a lot of the same story yeah. beats happened. Um, but because I think the 1980s setting gave it a different flavour than the the earlier one. I don't know. Um, I was so disappointed because I was so shit scared by the 1991. I couldn't get more than a few minutes into it. Then I watched it again a couple of years ago as an adult and I was like, why was I scared? Because yeah. of Mr. That's Cruel. Yeah. That's why we were scared because those of us who grew up mm. during the whole Mr. Cruel thing and there was a clown element to that as well that I think you talk to people who are roughly our age, they all have this time in history where they were petrified of being kidnapped. And I think you tie that to popular culture. It's experienced differently than a couple of decades yeah. later. Here's a trivia thing. The contrast between what we were talking about before about the safe era versus getting kidnapped? Like I think there, though, that's a touchstone in terms of a real crime that we were the same age as the victims mm. of. Um, for me, I didn't have any fond memories of Ghostbusters. It didn't interest me when it came out. Um, it was 1984, so I was four years old. I probably didn't see it then. I saw it a few years later. So I watched them back to back. I have a mixed feeling of it. On one hand, it's great that you get women in a very heavily budgeted film that's high profile. But that's also the reason that it's a problem. It's a problem that to get women into roles, they have to go into pre-established roles equally. I think you're setting them up to fail because you're going to always compare them to the, um, the, the white men's idea of perfection in that role. And I think that sets them up for an, an impossible standard because, again, the films, if you really love Ghostbusters, I didn't have that experience, but if you really love Ghostbusters, it's untouchable. It's material from your past that cannot be touched, even if, if you watch it now, it's like, oh, it's pretty shit. But then it was... It, no, well, whatever the film was, but then it was everything to you, and I think nothing can compare to that. So that idea of chipping away, I don't know, I think it's, it, it, it's almost a somewhat of a setting up for a misogynist experiment, which did play out, unfortunately. Yeah, they couldn't get away yeah, from... Um, they couldn't get away from the, the ghost bros. They had to address that in the script. But now they're going to be the Lord of the Flies bros, now that there's <laughs> an all-female version of Lord of the Flies in the, ring, in the works. You've already got the, oh, my God, we've got to protect the sanctity of the flies. 
<laughs> I, love, I think you can't do any better than the New Yorker satire piece about the all-female Lord of the Flies, which was like, oh, why don't we hold this conch shell so that we won't interrupt each other? But why would we interrupt one another? <laughs> yes. Uh, um, yes, we have another question down the front. Oh, Mike was right there. I was scratching my chin. Were you? Okay. <laughs> um, we've talked a lot about props and haircuts and clothes and things, setting a scene, but I'd be interested in your reflections on um, casting and the sort of variety of, of face shapes and body shapes and things, much more normal people that you used to see on screen uh, in history. I noticed that in, in Stranger Things, they, they had some interesting casting there, the sorts of people who are in it, um, compared to now when you watch a TV show or a movie and everyone's so airbrushed and perfect and unrealistically everyone is amazing looking in American movies, even the background people. Um, yeah, any, any reflections on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, with... Um with Puberty Blues, uh, and I, I made a, a, a series called Gallipoli as well, which, you know, we had to find a lot of young men that didn't look like they'd been in the gym. Mm. Um, and, and the same with Puberty Blues, like the guys, we had to find guys who surf, so we had to find guys who could actually surf, and they had to relearn how to surf like they used to on older boards. Um, but we were really conscious now of, you know, if you find any surfer, Who's, who's out, you know, to, to be in a role in a, in a show, they've also been in the gym. Mm. And bodies are just different shapes. Like men's bodies now, like they, they not only groom themselves differently, um, but they, they just work on their bodies in different ways. Like the, there wasn't a lot of broad shoulders, as broad as they are, and guns and six packs and those sorts of things back in the 70s, um, for better or for worse. Uh, and women, it's, you know, it, it, it gets incredibly tricky, actually, because you're never going to go to a young female actress and say, you know, if, if you if you want to put on some weight for this role, it's going to be fine, because you know, like women didn't look like the way that you look, the you know, back in that in that time. There's a different style these days, so it was very, you know, like you can't control everything. It's a bit like the light switches, you know, mm. you want to, but you can't, and you've got to you've, you have to embrace what's in front of you and 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 make those things work as best you can. I think it's interesting you mentioned with the Ghostbusters with the cameos as well, the kind of when it's particularly remake material where you have someone from the old film almost passing the, bat the baton onto, as though that gives it legitimacy. You know, you've, you've got that in Blade Runner now, but they name the film and invariably there's a cameo, almost as though we're giving, okay, well, this has been greenlit. It's, it's got the okay from the past. And I'm not sure, sometimes it just comes across as incredibly hokey and some of the cameos in Ghostbusters were incredibly hokey. In my yeah, view. it reminded me a lot of, say, 21 Jump Street when they um, had, you know, Johnny Depp show up at the end of 21 Jump Street, like, hey, or that, like, well, no, he wasn't the Fonz, but... Um, I just thought, <laughs> was there a... No, um, but also what was that really terrible um, one where they are... Um, Chips. Did anyone have the misfortune to see mm. the recent remake of Chips? No. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was it was just ill considered. But they had the original actors who played the, the highway patrol guys in cameos, and it felt like you were just saying um, wrote. It felt like the audience 
was going to be like, all oh, right, yeah, there's Well, because the, who's the nod the to? Is the nod to the original audience? In which case, they're already going to be cringing. Now mm. they're just cringing that little bit more. Well, some of these remakes are, are kind of weirdly timed because the, the target audience now is too young to remember the old one. Exactly. So who are these creepy old guys and what are they doing <laughs> as highway patrol people or whatever the role they are? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Don't see chips. Any further questions? Oh, oh hang on. Um, I just wanted to, I really loved Cracker Bag. I think that was one of your first films. Oh, we forgot to show the Cracker yeah. Bag clip. Yeah, shall we show Cracker Bag? Yeah, it's the next one. Yeah, here we go. Ma, I finished, can we go now? I had another mouthful. Thank you. 
tragic. <laughs> um, yeah, that was uh, just one of my favourites. It was a huge kind of inspiration. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to know if you could talk a bit about the experience of making that. Um, any, um, I thought it was interesting how you said um, that retro nostalgic feel is kind of like that um, spoonful of sugar that helps it, you know, makes it easier to digest and almost makes it um, just a little bit softer and, and prettier or a yeah. sad moment a little bit um, more charming. But yeah, could you talk a bit about that experience? Yeah, I mean, Cracker Bag is... Um even just watching it then, like it's, it's uh, the nicest thing that was ever said about that film was that it's a documentary after the fact. There was so much spe specifics put into it. I really thought when I was making it, the only people that would ever like that film would be my mum and my brother, the, the two people that are in the film. Um, me being the little girl, although I wasn't a little girl. So, um, but there's, but I, I found that the the more specific we went, the more like the more that it had to be that car, which was just the car that we had when I was ten. Um, it seemed to have this universal effect that that people all identified with it, even though I was thinking it was so so specific to my life that how would anyone ever relate to it? Um, everything, yeah. I mean, we, we went to ridiculous lengths to make that film on an incredibly low budget, but to try and do it to make it as real as possible. Um, I'm pretty sure the light switches in that film are, are legit. <laughs> Only that we found a, a house that was in pretty good nick at the time. Um, and, of, and of course the hardest thing there was the fireworks, like where mm. you used to be able to just walk in and buy domestic explosives at every <laughs> corner store. Um, uh, you know, it, was, it had to be incredibly controlled and manufactured and down to, you know, um, going through old uh, Chinese firework catalogues and trying to find um, designs that we could replicate um, en masse because there's a, a scene where she goes and buys those crackers. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a film that, for whatever reason, uh, regardless of age, country or cultural background, everyone seems to say that film's about them. I'm not sure why. Yeah. My main memory from Cracker Bag was the TV news. For some reason, that's really stuck out for me. Yeah. The news just really rang true for yeah. me. Well, it's good seeing Laurie Oaks on, on the <laughs> screen. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it was a... It's, it is. It is. It, it was. It was nostalgic to the point of documentary-like detail, <laughs> to the point where I don't know. I, I I never thought anyone would even give a shit about that film, but I'm glad that you did. <laughs> that you like it. Yeah. Well, it's lovely. Um, do we have any more questions? Maybe that might be a nice note to end on. Uh, well, thank you very much, everyone, for coming. And can you please thank my beautiful panellists here, um, whose futures will no doubt be as great as their imagined pasts. Hey. Yeah. Like thank you. You've been listening to an Acme Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings.